retreats became my life. And, and like, if I'm to be completely honest, I haven't really stopped that whole retreat life lifestyle. I still staff a retreat once a semester. And yes, I do still talk like I'm in high school and I say semesters. It's like, I can't, oh, what do people say? Like spring, fall, quarter, whatever. I can't do that. So high school youth group became my life. And one of the big, huge retreats at my parish was called the confirmation retreat. I know, really out there. <laughs> like, wow, guys, way to get really creative. Anyway, it was such a big retreat, we did it twice. So like they were, I don't know, two to four weeks apart or probably yeah, probably a month apart. And it was a big deal. I mean, each retreat had about 90 kids on it. That's not counting staff, okay? This is back in the day. This is back in the 90s, okay? So a lot of kids would go and it was my absolute favorite retreat until I started writing, <laughs> until I started writing some with my friends. But it was my favorite retreat and it was done at my favorite retreat center, which out here, it's called Camp Allen. It's actually an Episcopalian retreat center. And uh, oh man, I love that place. Oh, I love it. So to staff this retreat was a big deal. And it was something that we all loved to the point that we would fly home or drive home from college to still staff this retreat. That's how much we love the confirmation retreat. And that's how tight we were as a unit. Like, I don't know. Our little youth group was really something solid. It was really amazing. Senior year in high school, we were pumped, right? I mean, you're a senior in high school. I mean, it, seriously, does it get better than that in life? Not really. I'm kidding. But at the time, that is the biggest moment ever. That whole year is just sensational. And my year was ridiculous. I had this hot boyfriend who I ended up marrying, but oh, dang hot. Okay. Captain of the football team at his high school. We didn't go to the same high school. I was a stand leader, which I'm sure I have talked about. Yes, I have. I, oh no, I haven't. Well, I will. Anyway, at my high school, that was a big deal. <laughs> it was a really big deal. And I, we were running youth group. You know what I mean? Like it was like big deal at high school, big deal at youth group. The man in charge of this specific retreat didn't even go to our church. <laughs> His name was Bob. I do not feel bad saying Bob's name because this story he used to share publicly all the time, Bob has passed on so he can't, but it's something that he used to share all the time. Bob went to a church named Prince of Peace Catholic Community, which is actually now the parish I attend. The church I grew up at was Christ the Good Shepherd Catholic Community. And at the time, that was the place to be. So Bob would come over from Prince of Peace and staff this one thing. That was it. His whole year he dedicated to this confirmation retreat. And man, all I wanted was for Bob to think I was the best in any capacity. I don't care what it was. I just wanted his approval. I wanted his love and adoration and for him to think I wasn't a massive screw up and all the things. He could not stand me. Like, okay, when I say couldn't stand me, not like tongue in cheek, like other people that listen to this podcast or produce it, but I mean like legit hated my guts. Like, I'm not kidding. And what's crazy is he was an adult, 
obviously. His wife had actually passed away. So he was probably in his 50s, 60s, probably his 50s. I don't know. I'm 17. I'm, I'm young. Okay. I, I was in college at 17. So I'm a young 16 slash 17 year old during all this. And he was really honest about his hatred <laughs> for me. Like, yes, hate to the point where we were having a meeting about confirmation retreat. All the seniors were there. We had waited our whole lives for this moment. That's a little dramatic, but okay, you get it. And Bob says, we're all at his house. Bob says to the entire group, I'm officially announcing that Olivia Anselmi, which was my maiden name, is not allowed to staff confirmation retreat this year. I'm, I'm literally sitting there, okay? All my friends are there. I'm sitting there and Bob's like, and you're a hard no. Like he was like, I even had a folder with the, you know, with the schedule and like all the things. And I'm sitting there and I'm like, well, I literally don't know how to respond to this. Like I had no idea what to do. I'm just like, do I burst into tears and fall in, like into a corner bawling my face off, which is all I wanted to do? Do I die, which I just wanted the earth to open into a hole and I could just like, I don't know, live there forever? Do I laugh and act like, oh, <laughs> Tuesday, I get this all the time. Like, what do I do? What do I flipping do? Well, I, uh, I chose none of those and I ran out of his house. I, and listen, I was in a, I was in a tiny girl. We've already shared these stories. I was hefty and I was running, okay, in front of high school kids and I'm running out the door, door stuck. I mean, like seriously, think of all the things. It's like, like I can't open it up. Finally open up the door, run out. And I realized I left my keys on the table with the folder and I'm just standing in his front yard and I am just like, we're talking the Oprah ugly cry. You know, when Oprah talks about the ugly cry, like my whole body is convulsing, okay, in, in, in tears in grief, in, I don't, I was trauma. I don't know. So many things. The girl who was in charge of the confirmation treat that was my age. So she's a senior in high school, runs outside, starts hugging me. Her name is Margaret. And she says to me, don't listen to him. We love you. We think you're amazing. And you will staff with us at some point this year. And, and that's true. That's exactly what she did. She's now married with kids and like a professional. She's awesome. And that was a huge moment for me. It was the first time I had validation in a direct way as a young adult that someone hated me. And just for the reason to hate, like there was just nothing they could find redeeming about me. The second confirmation retreat that year, Margaret called me and said, hey, Liv, I finally talked Bob into it. He said you could come staff this retreat with all of us. So it was the last one. I missed the first one. Everybody got to go but me. That's fine. They gave me my folder. I show up. I'm there. And Bob has a staff meeting. So now it's the seniors. I don't know who else was there. I got the college kids that have come in because they're important to the story. The adults, we're having our staff meeting. You know, you go through the schedule, you go through small groups, you go through assignments, blah, blah, blah. Wait, like what's for dinner? I don't know. 
He says, I have an announcement to make. Olivia Anselmi is here on this retreat against my will. This is nothing I want, but you guys wore me down. So she's your problem. Looks at me and says, Olivia, if you speak one time, if I hear your voice one time, you're out of here. I'm calling your parents. You're going home. Okay, now imagine an adult saying that to a, a teenager, right? I'm pretty sure that was not allowed. And it's definitely not allowed now. So I'm sitting there completely humiliated, understanding that I am allowed to be there as a human, but I'm not allowed to speak. He took my voice. On that retreat, I was hanging out with the college kids because I had become really good friends with a couple of them. One of the guys brought his Jeep. We all pile in the back of the Jeep. This is like at midnight, <laughs> like Friday night, midnight. So I guess it's technically Saturday. We drive down to the lake. We shouldn't be doing any of these things, by the way. And they all start popping beers, bottles, cans. We're on this pier over the lake, over the pond. And uh, I'm standing there just really confused. I'd never been to a drinking party. <laughs> Like here I am a senior in high school. I was 17 and I had never really been around alcohol and they're all drinking. And then they're like drowning the bottles and the cans in the lake. And one of the guys turns to me and says, well, Liv, this is why you're the only one that's allowed to be here. You can't speak anyway. So we can do this all night long and you can't tell. What are we, third grade? We get back to the big like room, you know, like the big room where the whole retreat happens. All the kids are asleep, all the, you know, retreaters, most of the staff, Bob's awake and a couple of the adults. The seniors are all two sheets to the wind. Actually, I think I walked back because I was all against drinking and stuff. And I didn't drink. I didn't drink till I was 21. So we get back, Bob's sitting there and I'm like writing. I don't know what time it is, probably two, three in the morning. And I just decide, you know what? F it. Forget it. I'm going to go talk to him. I go over to Bob. I tap him on the shoulder. He turns to me and goes, you're not about to talk to me, are you? Because I think I was pretty clear in what you're not allowed to do on this retreat. I looked at him and I said, I know that, but I need to tell you what the college kids were just doing at the lake. And he goes, oh, okay, go ahead. Tell me. And I told him in tremendous detail. He pulled one of the kids who I guess, I don't know, wasn't quite asleep or talking, maybe on the porch or who knows the details. And they confirmed everything I said. Bob came back in the door, looks at me and says, I cannot apologize enough for being so absolutely horrible and mean and rude and awful to you. And I would love if you could forgive me for misjudging you. And I looked at him and I said, we are totally cool. Don't even worry about it. The next morning, Saturday morning, Bob got up in front of the entire retreat and told everyone how he had been treating me all year, what he said to me, you know, at his house, what he said to me with the kids, you know, the little staff and what happened last night, you know, the, that night and how I handled everything and how he's never been more wrong about a person in his life. From that point on, Bob became one of the biggest influences, mentors in my life. 
every time we staffed to retreat together, every time, Bob would tell this story. <laughs> he would tell the story how he hated my guts. And I was always like, we don't have to keep it emphasized because he would go on and on and on about how much he hated me. Like, I was like, we got, okay, we got it, you know? And then he would explain how wrong he was and how much I taught him. What is so fascinating is that Bob taught me a tremendous amount. He taught me how to take my voice back. When someone took my voice from me, he taught me how to take my voice back. He also taught me the difference when a man in power, and I'm not trying to get all into gender things. I don't mean this in a, in a bad way, but I mean this in a, in a very real way. Uh, when a man in power can hurt you as a female and, and can help you as a female, that there really is power in that, you know, space. And he became a huge advocate of mine and really changed some things in my life and in my husband's life. When I heard Vicki Clark, my guest today, talk about the men in her life and how they gave her a voice, my heart immediately thought of Bob. What's interesting is Vicki is a person that I have admired for years. And I admired her before I knew who she was. My girlfriends all knew who Vicky was. They've been following her. They have been impressed by her. They have been mentored by her. They've been taught by her on a national level forever. And I am sad to say I didn't know who she was. And then I got to spend some incredible time with her. Vicky speaks to massive amounts of people, thousands of people. People high up that I can't even, like if I start listing their names, you're gonna be rolling your eyes. She speaks internationally. She is a huge national speaker who is never home except during a pandemic. The things I've learned from this woman now, because she is one of my dearest friends, has changed my life. I have been sitting on this interview for a long time and it is time for everyone else who doesn't know Vicki Clark to meet this incredible woman. I am so proud and so excited to introduce and to welcome Vicki Clark. Hello, Vicki. How are you? Hello, Liv. How are you? And you, you were, we solved all the problems of the world on that day that we were driving around. We did. It was fantastic. Who knew that if someone just gave you and me like a couple of Starbucks and some road, we could figure out a lot of we stuff. We could figure it all out. Yes. <laughs> Prior to that, as you know, I traveled mostly 300 days a year, speaking, training, um, doing retreats, conferences, and all of that. So this is the longest that I have been in one place, if you will, in probably over 20 years. How much do you normally travel? Like how often, how many trips a month or a year? I don't know. Impress me. It really was about 300 days a year. You literally were on the road 300 days a year? I was literally on the road about 300 days a year. Yeah. Okay. But you primarily are a speaker. I'm, I think of myself more as a, a facilitator and, and a trainer and a consultant. Okay. Yeah. That's fair. So where have you gone? Oh, I've gone. I have been to 49 of the 50 states, not Alaska. Okay. Well, I have uh, provided training in Russia, Venezuela, Canada, and Great Britain. Oh my gosh. Are you serious? Okay, so dazzle me with some of the companies. I know 
you through Junior League. And if anybody doesn't know what Junior League is, go watch The Help and then burn it. (laughs) (laughs) That is not our best. (laughs) But there's a lot of movies, let's be honest, that feature the Junior League and not in a good way. And that's fair. The Junior League has a little bit of 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 a dark past, but who doesn't? But that's okay. There's some great people in it. And one of the greatest things that Junior League brought to me in my personal life Um, It's a service organization of women, and I'm in the one here. I'm one of the ones in Houston. There's multiple ones in the Houston area. And Vicki Clark, and I say this with tremendous sincerity, you are, I mean, you are the the junior league guru. And what's fascinating is that every league wants you. They want you to come speak. They want you to come train. They want you to come do everything. The National League uses you for every conference I've ever been to. You were there. Um, so you're kind of this junior league mystery. But I'm guessing you do other work besides junior league fangirling for all of us. Because <laughs> we kind of well. do. Um, and I want to know why you never joined the Junior League. So those two questions. Okay, let's start off with, first of all, I have been incredibly uh, fortunate to have probably more of a 15-year relationship with the Association of Junior Leagues International, been on their training team and um, have done, like you say, most of the conferences and worked with a lot of the individual leagues. But my work is much larger than that. And um, I have trained for the Center for Disease Control, trained for Dun & Bradstreet, trained for Union Bank, uh, the American Bar Association, Servant Leadership Institute. Oh my gosh. I mean, it's, you know, uh, education associations. I've spoken at universities. I'm old, Liv. I've kind (laughs) of done a bunch of stuff, you know? And uh, again, I get asked just to to work with the Audubon Society, uh, just amazing, uh, uh, amazing organization. And obviously St. Jude here in Memphis, which just has a special place, you know, in my, in, in my heart. Um, so, and I work across all three sectors. I work with government groups, again, like the Center for Disease Control and like school districts. And then obviously with nonprofits and professional associations like bar associations, and then work, you know, do work in the corporate, in the, in the corporate world. So that's what keeps it interesting for me. No, no and, kidding. And I love it. I, I do have a special place in my heart for women's organizations because I believe strongly in developing women leaders. Uh, I believe strongly in the power of women coming together uh, as change agents. Uh, but I also work with, you know, organizations that have men in them. <laughs> And we love men. That have men. Of course, I have. <laughs> I have uh, two adult sons, and I have a grandson. And I'm divorced, so if anybody has a name and a number, I am open for it. Uh, so I this like is men. Great. I love men. So the idea that I, you know, I, um, but it, it's somehow that I have, you know, I, I do do a lot of work with women's organizations, but I work with Alexa Bar Associations. Uh, all kinds of groups. I and love it's, it. It's just, yeah, I, I have loved, and I'll tell you why, because I approach the world as a learner. Mm. And so every time I work with a group, I'm learning. I don't approach this, and I don't even want to call it work, the relationship with a, with a group, a company, uh, as, okay, I'm coming in, I know everything, let me tell you what you do. It's like, no, I want to learn who you are. I want to learn how we can best work together. I work with uh, Malax Corporate Ventures uh, up in Hinkley, Minnesota. They have casinos and they have um, 
I think they have a couple of hotels working with all of their employees around turning the whole organization into a servant leadership organization. They have a dynamic CEO whose name is Joe Nequinavy. And uh, he and his team uh, are serious about turning a traditional, you know, think about casinos and hotels, sort of into embedding the qualities of servant leadership into that that company. Wow. And it's been highly successful. Wow, that's and it's just been fascinating to watch and to be a part of that evolution. And I do love to get to work with organizations over a period of a period of time. So, so that's it's, yeah. Yeah. So you've done you have done way more. And that's that question really honest to goodness was for our junior league sisters because I know they think that that you only belong to them and that no. you only and they don't know. No, I know no. they know that that you are are vastly uh diverse in what you do. But I'm guessing you never joined junior league because you travel so much, because you could you it would just be so difficult for yourself to, I don't know, commit. Well, let's be honest, I never joined Junior League because I think at the time that I would have joined Junior League, I'm not sure how welcoming Junior League would have been to me. I really had not heard of Junior League uh, until I was working in Washington for the Points of Life Foundation. Uh, And we did a a partnership with them during International Year of the Volunteer. And so that would have been 80s. I was going to say the 80s, right? Points of Light was, yeah. Right. And so we were, it was uh, Association of Junior Leagues International, United Nations Volunteers and Points of Life Foundation. And so that's how I met, you know, the the Junior League movement. And, um, but I had told the Junior League of Memphis, believe it or not, that's only like 30, not 20 minutes from here, that if I ever got off the road, I would join the Junior League of Memphis that I would be one of their oldest new members <laughs> and that they would probably have to build a ramp for me. Stop. And now, of course, we're stuck in the house. Yeah. But I, you know, I really would love to, you know, join, uh, the, you know, the Junior League of Memphis. I would be proud. I've worked, you know, with them uh, and, and respect them. But yeah, I'm not sure if when I was in my, and now, you know, junior league, you can join at any age now, but I'm not sure when I would have been in my twenties or so. I mean, I didn't know anything about junior league. Sure. So let's talk about what you started out your life doing when you, when you come out as an adult and with the education you have, what was your goal? What was your plan? What did you tell the universe? Hey universe, I'm going to be a what? What was it? Young 22-year-old Vicky, what, what were well, you all doing? The first thing I want to say is that I have learned that if you want to make God laugh, tell him <laughs> or her what plans you have for your life. <laughs> there you go. So I wanted to be a journalist. Okay. I had always wanted to be a journalist um, to, to write. And I wanted to work, I thought, I, you know, I wanted to work for a magazine and those types of things. So I went to University of Missouri, Columbia. And... Um, we moved, I got married and we moved to St. Louis. And I did, I worked for a Lutheran publishing company, even though I was not Lutheran, but my fascination for the Lutheran publishing company was that I was Methodist. Many of them had never met a Methodist before. Really? It was interesting. Well, you gotta remember, often groups like that hire through their own education system. Interesting. And so it was fascinating that here I was a young black woman. This was in the early seventies. So I was black, I was young, and I was Methodist, 
And I was like, they can check a bunch of boxes with me. I didn't realize that though. But I had an, I had an amazing, I learned there. I worked first in their human resources and wrote their internal newsletters. And then I got to work in the uh, children's book area with an amazing woman, African-American woman, who was helping to develop uh, children's materials for Lutheran Sunday schools and, and things like that. And, you know, that's what I thought I wanted to do. And then we moved. No, we we moved. Yes, we did. My husband worked for Texaco. So we were started the whole getting transferred. And I don't know about now, but in the 70s, nobody was interested in the spouse's job. Mm, you were just right. supposed to go tagging along, you know, a career. <laughs> you were just supposed to go tagging along with whatever. And which kept forcing me. And now when I'm looking in the rearview mirror, I'm like, this was great. But when I was in it, I was like, this is a bummer uh, to keep starting over. Oh, that's interesting. Yes, to keep so- starting over. So we moved to Chicago. And it's like, okay. So I went to work for a trade magazine, a, 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 a company of trade magazines. They had about four or five. And believe it or not, one of them was about baking. What I don't bake. Uh, one of them was about canning and packing. They were trade books. And so I would write articles and, you know, we did the conference thing and all of that. And then I went to uh, Northrop Grumman. So like, okay, now I'm working for a defense contractor. And I went there for internal communications. And, you know, I did their newsletters and all of that. But then an opening came up in human relations, human resources. And I was like, I like people. I like humans. <laughs> I understand resources. And uh, they were starting a an intern. You got to remember, this was the 70s. They were starting an internal promotions program. They did not have that. This was at the time that most of the people who worked on the line, and I did have a secret clearance. I have no idea what they made. I don't want to know what they made. It had something to do for the government. I think they were called radar jammers, and that's all I know. And um, Those people were bussed in from inner city Chicago out to Rolling Meadows, Illinois, which is a suburb of Chicago. And there was this whole factory and it ran three shifts. All the money, all the the jobs came through, you know, the government contractor, the majority of the supervisors, managers were all former military, mostly all male and definitely all white. Wow. And so the idea that the, the vice president of human resources, and I guess what California, which is where her headquarters was, is said is we want to make this, we want our culture to be different. We want to give people an opportunity to stay with this company. We want to give people opportunities. And so the idea that here I am, and I was very young, I was very cute, but I was very young. (laughs) Starting an internal promotions program in a very highly structured government contract. That's And I remember, and so so employees could then fill out an application to say they wanted to be promoted. We started posting jobs. They weren't secret anymore. You know, you you posted jobs, people applied for them, and I remember we used to have these big green books that had what every level of job 
and this is gonna sound ridiculous to your audience, uh, there were jobs called wire and solder and they worked on these little circuit boards. That's what they did. And there was wire solder one, wire solder two, all this kind of stuff. So I remember a woman filled out her application to go from a wire solder one to a wire solder two. And her manager would not, her supervisor, her line leader would not sign it. Because see, they were very accustomed to, you work on this line, because I say you work on this line. You don't move off this line. Again, don't forget, these are all people who were former military. Oh, geez. And she said, and I remember at that time, I think they were making $4.40 an hour. I mean, I know oh that sounds gosh. ridiculous now. Oh, my god! And I think moving to the next level, she would have made like $4.80 an hour. And she said, I'm doing the job anyway. And I will tell you this story. This man, older man, came storming into human resources, waving that paper that she, you know, her application. And he demanded to see the vice president of human resources, who was an amazing mentor to me. And this guy came in screaming, I want to see Dick Good, he said. And he said, I want you to keep that girl off my manufacturing floor. I don't want her out there telling people that they can get promoted and they can get other jobs and all that. And Dick Good was amazing. He said, so wait, excuse me, who are you talking about? That girl, he's your girl. That's what he said, your girl. I want you to keep your girl off my manufacturing floor. And he says, my girl, have you met my daughter? My daughter <laughs> lives in Ohio. I didn't think you had met my daughter. Now I can hear all this, because you know, we had cubicles and all this. So I'm like, okay. <laughs> and I mean, this guy is just ready. And all of this, letting people get promoted and all this kind of stuff, this is just ridiculous. How the heck are we going to keep order and how are we supposed to run this plant? Oh, I mean, it was just, you know, it was the overacting white man ensemble company. He was on, you know, he was just crazy. And so then finally, uh, Dick Good said, you must be talking about Mrs. Clark. And I, he said something like, I don't know, I don't, I'm not sure what her name is or something. So he said, let me have her come in here. And he, you know, I walked in there and I said, hello. And, and I said, hello to the, the supervisor. And, and he said, that's her. And so I'm just standing there, you know, and he's still waving the, the woman's application. And he said, this is no way to run a factory. You know, you people can't get promoted and when they want to and all this kind of stuff. And so Mr. Good said, well, you know, you're fully aware of the internal promotions program. And, you know, the general manager has, you know, this is one of the, what the general manager wants for us to do, not only, but this is what corporate wants for this organization. So why don't we all just walk around to the general manager's office and you can tell him how you feel. And, you know, and I was like, well, we don't have to do that, but I just think we need to, you know, blah, 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 blah. And it was interesting because it was for the first time that I realized that people were, not that I realized, I knew people deliberately held people back, but there was no, idea of what at that point 40 cents an hour would have meant for that woman and oh no he looked at me and said do you realize that you you are putting the safety and security of the united states of america in jeopardy that's a lot of power i know 
Well, and that's what Dick Good said. He said, if the safety and security of the United States of America is in the hands of a $4.40 wire and solder, we're in trouble. <laughs> no kidding. Well, now we know. You just solved it again for us, Vicki. <laughs> you just told us what the downfall of America has been. You might remember in July 2020, I had a live on-air audition with SiriusXM Radio, the Catholic channel. It did not go as I hoped because I didn't get the gig. I ended up going into a deep, dark depression when Sirius cut me, and I didn't know what I was supposed to do. I no longer had a goal. I no longer had a dream. I stopped professionally working for 50 days, and I went down a spiral. And then I found The Woman's School by January Donovan. I joined a master class that began August, September, and we meet twice a month and we'll meet for six months. That class has changed my life. I have a dream. I have a goal. Everything has shifted, and it's for every woman, no matter where you are, stay-at-home mom to professional. Starting in January 2021, I will be a strategist with my own small group mastermind or one-on-one. I would love for you to join me. Contact me for more information at theliveharrison.com, which is my website. You can fill out the newsletter form or email me, live, L-I-V, at theliveharrison.com. Come and join my group or one-on-one. I would love to help you find your goals and dreams. I really did like working there and I loved opening up, you know, a part of we had, then we had that you couldn't just find people on the spot. Yeah. Cause it used to be that you could just, they could just walk up and find people on the spot. Right. So no, now you had to have a conversation, a verbal right. warning, a written warning, and you could not terminate anybody until we had a, a, a release conversation. And I remember what Dick Good said, and it was something, because it, it's the way I've always lived my life. He said, we will separate the person from the action. Oh, wow. We will not denigrate people. He said, yes, you will need to release people. But we want to make sure that people are released because of something they've done, something they haven't done, not because they are bad people. He said, now, will they be able to hear you that day that they are being released? No, probably not. But they will hear it later. That people are being released because of absenteeism or because of this, but not because they are bad people. Separate the person from from the activity or from the action action. and make sure that people, that we try to help people to maintain their dignity, even in when you're releasing someone. And, And it's interesting because that's who I feel like I've always been. And it was just, and I really worked really hard, uh, you know, to do that. And no, I, it was not fun releasing people. And a lot of those people really did need their jobs. But I, I, I was comfortable that they had had a process and that I did try to, you know, not, I wouldn't take anybody's dignity away no, from No, that's beautiful. Them. And he sounds really incredible, this Mr. He was. He was Mr. an amazing. Mr. Good sounds fantastic. Mr. Good, Mr. Good was way cool. Was good. And I just, he, <laughs> he was, was good way Mr. cool. Good. He so, was a good Mr. Good. And then but, we moved to Houston. <laughs> oh, jeez. And when we moved to Houston, it was during a downturn. So mm. everybody in human resources was laying everybody off. Some people in Houston remember those Black Fridays yeah. when those of all companies were laying, 
you know, 500 people off and then they lay themselves off. And so there was no, no work in that. So for a while, talking about life, I went to work for a food maker, which was Jack in the Box people doing marketing for them. And being a woman, being an only child, my mother was here in Memphis at the time and she had a lot of health problems. There was no family leave then. Oh, when, right. you left, when you left to go take care of somebody, I mean, they give you a little bit of grace, you know, I mean, but after a couple of weeks, yeah. you didn't have a job anymore. Mm-hmm. Okay, so that's start all over again. And um, my mom moved to Houston, which was a great, something she sacrificed. I mean, again, what women sacrifice for their families and for people that we love. And she, I mean, she didn't want to move to Houston. She didn't know anybody in Houston, but she knew that it was best, you know, for all of us, including her. And then I got a job uh, as a volunteer coordinator uh, in a victim witness program at a place called Houston Metropolitan Ministries. I didn't know what a volunteer coordinator was. This is when you had to get a job looking in the newspaper, you know, and it has a little <laughs> ad a and it said, it, yeah, that was a newspaper, <laughs> you know, and it said speaking, writing, organizing, community. And I'm like, I can speak, I can write, I could be organized. I like community. And I went and applied for the job. And it was a new program called Youth Victim Witness. This was the beginning of the programs around family violence, specifically around women and children beginning of Missionary Women's Center and the programs that we almost take for granted now. But victim witness work then is where human trafficking work is now. Oh, that's interesting. That's yeah, fascinating. Me, yeah, it was the beginnings of beginning. all of these And you never programs. think about the beginning. You just know that it's there. It's like the highway. It's like, oh, it's always been here. And it's like, no, no it's somebody not always built that. Yeah, exactly. Right. So there was right. CASA was starting, Child right. Advocates was starting. We wow. had this very, this program and I'm not a victim's advocate, but what they wanted was somebody to get volunteers involved, um, not as advocates, but starting a speaker's bureau, you know, those types of things. We had a family support group for non-offending members of the family and, and all of that. And so when the woman said to me that they had a small grant and it was called volunteer coordinator. And I said, do you get paid? And she said, barely. And I was like, <laughs> okay, you know, and I, it was, it was a good experience for me. Uh, it was also the beginnings of me really seeing the value of what a board of directors could do. Uh, that organization was primarily uh, supported by faith communities. At that time, Christian, Catholic, and Jewish communities, I'm not sure if there were any Muslim, any mosques that were involved at that time. And many of the larger congregations were uncomfortable with that program because that program was talking about, are you wait, wait for it, wait for it, sexual abuse. Oh, really? Yes. Nobody wanted kids, to talk about it at that time. It was very taboo. Right, right. Wow. And so I remember us, and again, I was the volunteer coordinator of the smallest program in the place. Because prior to that, they had a food pantry. They had a community garden. They had a... Um, it's like NAM, like Northwest Assistant Ministries. Exactly. In, in yes. my part of town. I have worked with. Yes, sure. exactly. And they had had nothing that was controversial. Interesting. So this was at that time for the supporting uh, faith congregations, controversial. And our program director, it's two and a half of us. You know, she said, we're gonna go to a board meeting. And I'm like, why? And she said, well, there's some discussion about this program. 
I was like, okay. And we went and I remember one of the board members cause people were like, no, this is, we shouldn't be in this business and you know, this blah, 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 blah. And I remember this one board member and it was a woman and she stood up and she said, if not us who, and if not now, when? We say that we are about families. We say that we are about community. And this is an issue. This is not a new issue. This has plagued families, specifically women and children, from time, from the beginning of time. Right. And if we are who we say we are, I'll never forget that, then yes, we are doing the right thing. I was like, yeah, what she said. I also <laughs> want to keep my job and my dental insurance. But I really, I mean, I'm just being honest with you, but you know, I just yeah. thought, she was so powerful to help the, you know, the others who were like, we shouldn't be doing this and all of that. So part of my job was to go into churches and synagogues and recruit at that time, what I thought were older women. They probably were the age I am now. So they really weren't that old. And I would go to their missionary meetings. I would go to their sisterhood meetings. I would go to their to groups like, you know, Church Women United and all of those groups. And I remember getting back and the executive director of the whole place came to me and he said, so you've been out upsetting the church ladies again. And I said, what did I do? And he said, well, they called and said that you told them that they had to have uh, background checks. And I said, yes. And I remember one lady said, we don't need background checks with church ladies. And I said, well, everyone who is a volunteer, and even though most of these folks were not working with the children, you, we still have to have a background check. And he said, so they called, their pastor called. And I was like, oh, he said, you did the exact right thing. Good. You know, we have, to have, we have to have, you know, this, this is important. And yes, this is a new program. For us, but we really want to help to educate not only the congregations, but we also went into the companies to talk about family violence. And the interesting thing was they would say things like, well, we don't have that here. I mean, you got like 30,000 people working in a giant building downtown in Houston. No family violence. We have no family, we have no family violence here. Do you do anything on time management? I'm like, no, no, we, we talk about family violence. And you know, that was <laughs> right. I mean, you know, time management. I'm like, no. And they give you a check to go away. So I guess it was kind of worth the trip. Uh, but then it actually took, unfortunately, one crazy boyfriend to shoot a woman oh. in the parking lot. She didn't die, thank goodness. Thank God. Of a company. And then our speakers bureau, which was primarily made up of volunteers at that time, was busy forever. And I'm gonna be honest with you, Liv. After two years, I hit the wall. Oh, I can't imagine. The stories, and again, I was not working with the children, but the stories, it became very heavy on my heart. Oh, I'm sure. And I would sit in the car on the way into work and I would cry. And then when I get home, I'd sit in the park in the driveway and I would cry. And I finally went to my program director who was younger. Again, I had some incredible call them bosses, call them mentors, call them angels in my life, men and women, but specifically women and women who were younger than me. And I went to her and I did the ugly cry. And I was like, I can't do this anymore. And she said, what is wrong with you? And I was like, I can't do this anymore. And she said, what do you mean? 
And I said, I just can't do it anymore. And she said, do you have another job? And I'm like, no, who's stupid enough to go to the people you work for and tell them you can't do this anymore and you don't have a job. <laughs> and she said, well, calm down and stop crying. And I told her, she said, well, you're just tired. We had had a big holiday event party for the kids. And I said, no, no, I just. You were done. And she, the fact she, you know, I've learned so much about servant leadership, but she embodied what servant leadership was because she cared more about me. And you got to realize this is a two and a half person program. And here she is getting ready to lose a, a key position. I'm not talking about a person. And first she said, you have done what we ask you to do. We ask you to start a public education campaign. We ask you to organize a volunteer program. We ask, you've done that. And we're in good shape with that right now. And she said, I think you're a generalist. I think that, that your heart is too soft for this issue. And she said, I say that with all respect. And she sent me to the volunteer center where that worked with all different kinds of organizations. And they did not have any, any work right then but they had a couple of grants out. And that's how I really started in this work. And then someone came from Washington because we were a part of Points of Light Foundation, which was the National Volunteer Center before. And they were looking for people to come from the field. And another amazing woman, this woman's name was Carrie Moffitt. And they were looking for somebody to go to DC, supposedly to work for three months. And she said, I think you'd be great at it. And I worked for them for 12 years. And you were still married at this time? I was married, but I was only gone for a year. I commuted from DC to Houston at that time. And then I thought, if I want to do this, I can't do this in DC. I have to go home. My oldest son was going to graduate from high school. And I, you know, it that's just, incredible that you took a remote position and traveled that much. Right. And I was always on the road because I was visiting volunteer centers and corporate volunteer programs. It was very, I mean, women didn't do a lot of that. No, then. Vicky, you were like, I mean, you were a trailblazer in what women do, which is why I know, you know, why you come and train so many women in, in so many different fields, because, and I know that you don't just train women, but you definitely have this perspective. And then put on top of it, you're a black woman who went through a lot, meeting a lot of different people. I can't imagine what it's like in your shoes in 2020, with all the experience you've had, right? Starting in the 70s when you were a young black woman to here you are now still a young black woman. Yeah, in, right. <laughs> in 2020. Yeah, right. And you have got to have this perspective of what it's like out there, A, as a woman, just period, right? And then A, as a person of color, how that, ha that topography has changed in the workforce. Good and bad, like both. I was going to say, but you know what? I grew up in this house. We moved to this house when I was 10 years old. I now live in the house I grew up in, which is extremely comforting for me after having lived in all these different places. And I'm back in the house I grew up in. I was 15 years old when Martin Luther King was assassinated 15 minutes from here. And... I believed, like many in my generation, that when the laws changed, when the voting rights laws were changed, when the Civil Rights Act was done, 
And then when people got to see people who look like me as human beings, and when we would have access, that the world would really change. And here we sit, 2020, five weeks, unless we can talk about so many people, we can talk about George Floyd, we can talk about Brianna, we can talk about Elijah. I mean, if we call the roll, we'd be on this, we'd be here forever. And that makes me incredibly sad because I never thought that this would even be an issue at this point, let alone that in some ways it's so much worse. Oh, that's interesting. And, and, and yeah. so the idea of, yes, I have gone through doors that were open for me. I hope in my way I've opened a few doors, but I'm not sure if the conversations around racism, the conversations around equity, I'm not sure if we were diligent enough. And when I say we, I'm not talking about people of color. I'm talking about people who care and people who believe in justice. I think we all got very comfortable. And one thing about a movement is got to keep moving. And people kept saying, I think at some point, well, where are the leaders? You know, where are the leaders? We have to be the leaders, each of us individually. And we lead from wherever we sit with whatever our networks are. And our networks start with our family. And I know that now people are having tough conversations with family members because they don't always agree with family members about their views about racism or their views about bias and all of that. And this is tough time. So, you know, these two plagues that we have now with COVID-19 and with what I call the renewed vigor around racial injustice. But no, I never thought we would be here. And I, in some ways, I'm gonna be honest with you, I feel like it's boomers. We kind of let the rest of you down because we didn't keep it moving to where you know, I mean, and I remember, the, talk about, let's talk about the women's movement. You know, the, when the ERA was supposed to pass in the 70s, it never occurred to me that the ERA wouldn't pass. I'm like, this is a no-brainer. Women killed the ERA. It wasn't men. Women polarized. And you had women on one side saying, if these women get the ERA passed, there won't be any more children, the destruction of the American family. Then on the other side, you have women saying, if we don't get the ERA, everybody's still going to be barefoot and pregnant and in the house and all of that. And what we didn't realize is we should have come together to say what it was that would benefit all women, regardless of what lifestyle women chose. And so we don't have an ERA today. And that's why we got this crazy thing in April called Equal Pay Day, which really is unequal pay day for white women which shows that white women in certain jobs, they have to work till April to get what white men make and black women have to work till September in the same job. It's crazy. And so the polarizations that have happened through all these movements, I am praying that it does not happen this time. That, that this um, is it. You know, I said to somebody the other day, this ain't my first time at this rodeo. <laughs> yeah. But I'm hoping it's my last time. I like that. Not oh, because yeah. of my age, but because this has to be a sustained movement. And we all have to educate ourselves. Just because I'm an old Black woman from Memphis, I don't know any more about this than anybody else. 
I'm learning, I'm growing, I'm examining my own stuff, if you will, my own biases and learning, you know, about, you know, and, and, and stepping out and I've created or the world created for me, what I call not a safe space, but a brave space. There's this, this page and I started it with my mouth by going on Facebook Live, talking about the horrors of what happened with Mr. Floyd. And my maiden name is Floyd. So when, when you hear the name, when they were talking about Mr. Floyd, I felt like they were talking about my father. Oh, goodness. And then I realized that Breonna Taylor and I shared the same birthday, June oh, 5th. Goodness. And it was like the universe was calling me. And I'm not trying to be overly dramatic, but I was running from it. I'm going to be honest with you. I was running from it. And then I started like going on Facebook Live talking about my experiences and growing up during the 60s and how I thought this we would never be back here. And now all of a sudden, we have this page. Really, it's a community. I'm not going to call it a page. It's a community, much like the people who listen to you. It's called, let's talk about it and do something about it, how to show up and serve. And there are close to 6,000 people who have joined that community on Facebook. That's unbelievable, by the way. In a month, in six weeks. That's unbelievable. I didn't seek this out. And it's, I'm learning. People are putting up resources. People are asking questions. And the most important thing is people are telling their stories. They're saying things like, I didn't know. It never occurred to me. Or how do I talk to somebody? And am I answering them all? No. That's what a community is. They're talking with each other. And so this, this is incredibly challenging, incredibly overwhelming, but it is also incredibly gratifying to know that people really care. They want change and they want to be a part of it. They're not sitting on the sidelines. They want to be a part of it. And I just am just grateful to be a part of this. So I want to encourage all your you know, all your listeners to, you know, go to, you know, let's, let's talk about it and do something and, you know, get in the conversation. We need everybody's voice. I think that's incredible. And I, I don't want you to have to say your age, but I want to make a point of, you know, uh, Julia Child didn't learn to cook till she was 40. And there's some other incredible stories about people who they do incredible things at different parts of their life. You're never too young and you're never too old to make a difference on this planet. Now, you're a person who's made a difference, I would argue to say, your whole time. But it's also beautiful to see how, and for me, God has taken your life and you've been used a lot of different ways. You've said yes a lot of different times to whatever the universe God is asking you to do. And you've stepped into it and said yes. And I want to ask about this one specifically because this is really magnificent that this entire Facebook community has happened and it takes a village. And I think that's exactly what you're, you're saying. We use that quote, like, Oh, it takes a village to help raise a kid. It takes a village to help raise each other. So I think it's really great that you're offering this space, but I got to ask you, here we are at Facebook. Facebook live is intimidating to everybody. Okay. Not just anybody who's over the age of 12, but anybody, right? Right. That moment when you decide you know what? I'm going to go live on the internet mm -hmm. and I'm going to talk a little bit about my story, my perspective as a black woman in America. What had a quiet down in your life for you to say yes 
to that request from the universe for your spiritual space. What had a quiet down for you to step through that? Well, I want to be honest with you, uh, talking about, you know, again, my faith is really important. I had always worked by myself when, when I had started my own consulting firm. I have to tell you this before I answer your question. It all sounds like, okay, she went from this job to that job and that career, but that's great. Yeah, well, in 1968, no, in, 19, in 1998, my life crashed and burned. And my marriage of almost 30 years ended, came out of the blue. People go, oh, they always know. No, they don't. And my mother passed away. This was in six months time. Um, and I lost it. And the job that I had in DC, after you kind of go crazy, they don't kind of want you back at your big job anymore. And I remember one day leaving the house and I went to the doctor and I just lost it. And then I said, okay, I have to go home now. And he said, no, you're not going home you're going to go someplace where you can get some help. And I said, no, I have to go home. I have things that I have to do. And I have two sons and I have things that I have to do. And he said, no, 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 you, you have to go someplace. And I said, why? He said, because you're suffering from PTSD. And I said, I've never been in a war. He said, your life is a war. And I was like, yeah. So I went to a psychiatric hospital and it was the best thing that ever happened to me. And Every, it gave me a chance to learn about myself. It gave me a chance to rest. It gave me a chance to, first of all, it helped me to understand that I was in charge of nothing. Uh, I will tell you a story. And this was in Houston and the, um, you know, you go in for your session every day. And I, and I said to the, the doctor, um, how are you? And he said, not so good today. And I was like, oh. You know, since a psychiatrist, I'm like, what's wrong with him? And I said, oh, I'm sorry. And um, he said, yeah, I've been thinking a lot about you. And I said, I'm like, oh, no, I done ticked the psychiatrist in the psychiatric hospital off. What have I done? And he said, it's raining. And I said, yes. And he said, I had planned to do things outside later today. And I said, oh, I guess you can't do that now that it's raining. He said, no. And he said, I'm really upset with you about that. And I said, I don't control the rain. And he said, you don't. He said, and you've been telling me for the last two weeks that if you had been a better wife, your marriage would still be intact. If you had been a better caregiver for your mother, your mother wouldn't have died. If you had been a better employee for your big job in DC, you know, you wouldn't be on the skids. Now he goes, you don't control the universe. You don't control life and death. You don't control the way people feel. You don't control a lot of things. And that was when my eyes were open that I don't control all of that. And that things happen. And, 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 and it was a very scary time in, in my life. But I share my story, not because I want people to feel sorry for me, but I want people, and I didn't know what I was going to do. I had no idea. Everything, every identification that I had was gone. I'd been a wife for many, many years, a, a daughter. My father was still alive, but a daughter, all that, the, the work, everything was gone. And it was like, who am I? What do I do? And I felt like that everything I had invested a lot of time and energy in went like poof. And somebody, a very good friend of mine said to me, there is something on the other side of through. You just got to go through it. 
I've never there heard that. There's something on the other side of through. Wow. And I kept holding on, even though I decided to leave Houston and move back to Memphis. My father was here because this is kind of, it's a safe, it felt like a safe place because Houston didn't feel safe anymore because of all of that. I mean, not physically not safe, but emotionally not safe. And I kept saying, you know, I'm never going to have a job like that anymore. You know, my life is, you know, and she said, why are you holding on to what was? The universe, God has something else for you. But until you are ready to emotionally release, it can't get through. Oh, wow. And I had no idea. I had no, I didn't plan this. People started calling. Can you come do this? Can you do that? Okay. Then somebody said, what's the name of your business? It's like, business? I'm in business? You know? <laughs> and, no one told me. It, yeah. Nobody told me. <laughs> and so I, it has been an incredible journey. So I want people who are struggling out there. And it's dark. It's I dark. know what dark. I know what dark is. I call it my lit concrete from face down time. <laughs> That's how bad it felt that I was wow. on my face down licking concrete and I didn't know how to get up. Yeah. And it just, it, it's grace. And I had to learn how to give myself grace first and to forgive myself and to release myself and to say you did the best you could with all of that stuff. I've always been good at giving other people grace, but I had to learn how to give myself grace. And I've just been incredibly blessed. How did you learn? How, how would you tell somebody else how to give themselves grace? Without like going crazy and going to the psychiatric hospital? Yeah, besides that piece. Besides that piece. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I think you just really have to learn to forgive yourself. And as women, we're so hard on ourselves. Because again, we think we control everything. Right. And we don't. Or we blame ourselves. We blame. We, I blame myself we for don't everything. Control everything. We don't. Yeah. So and here so, you are in front of that Facebook screen about yeah. to put yourself out there in a way that is very vulnerable. And that's the thing. I mean, it's it's vulnerable when you take a stage, or when you train or when you do anything. But this is also really personal. And you are a speaker and a trainer and someone who comes in and you you are very personal. Like we all leave the room that you just talk to us or, you know, whatever, thinking we're best friends and you're coming to our house for Thanksgiving. Well, so you're I'm very an good only at that. child. Well, I'm an we, only child. You're adopted by to, everyone. I'm always <laughs> trying to grab friends and I'm an only child of an only child. So I always <laughs> have gone through life saying, be my friend. You well, know? you have a million of them. Yeah, so, well, but this is, this is different work, Vicki. I mean, this is, is very different work. This is different work. This is just you, right? I mean, this is you. So what what did you have what did you have to quiet down in order to say yes to that to step into that space fear fear, fear of what first of all i hadn't had my hair done in two months and that's i looked fair. stupid that's so i fair. had to go my hair so the first <laughs> ones that i did believe it or not um uh, again i'm in the house i grew up in i got my a hat of my father's a fedora a straw fedora and I put it on. And the first two that I did, I had my father's fedora no. on. Yes, yes. Did not you share only... that it was your dad's fedora? Yes, yes. Oh, but also I because it. it made me feel so, not so scared. Yeah. And also it covered my hair. But I mean, it was because I wanted my dad, you know, and I had my dad's, I went in the closet 
and I found my dad's straw fedora and I had it on for the first couple of times that I did that. And I also had met, again, the Universal Senior People, an incredible young woman who said, you know, I wanna, I wanna work with you, I wanna help you. And she said to me, you got to tell your story. You People wanna know how you feel about things. And I said, people don't care how I feel about things. And she said, yes, they do. And her name is Shayla Sanchez. And I keep asking her where she been all my life. And I realized she wasn't born for half of it. And um, <laughs> in just in the past six, eight weeks, she has made an incredible difference in my life, not just because we were working together, but because of our relationship. Oh, I love no, that. No, I'm not ashamed to tell how old I am. I just made my 69th trip around the sun. Perfect. And I'm you know, very, very happy uh, to say that I'm, you know, 69 years old. And I have another woman who was working, working together, Sharon Lavoie, who I met uh, when I was doing training for the Delta Leadership Institute, where we trained leaders from eight states. And so the three of us have kind of created, we this just presence, this, this movement. This, they're my dream team. And I, and I, first of all, I like them as people. I like them as women and they guide me and we, they talk me down off the wall and they push me and I do the same thing, you know, with them. And it's just, again, for someone who has worked by herself for so long, it is incredible to have this small community, the three of us who are working together and then this large community. Because my fear was that once I got off the road, all this would be over for me. Right. That I would, you know, disappear. And I mean, I don't... You know, I mean, I can watch mine as TV like anybody else, but I felt like there was probably a little bit more for me to do, but I had no idea. And you're doing it. I, I, and I don't, I'm not quite sure what it is, but I'm <laughs> but you're walking something. through it. There's something I'm on the other side of the room. I'm walking through it. And, and you're I'm going still, through it. And I'm Zooming every day, you know, doing, I do a lot of board retreats for nonprofit boards. And I do a lot of, I'm still doing conferences, Zooming conferences. Two other things is that I am on the board of two organizations that I care very much about, the National Diaper Bank Network. I care so much about diaper need. I care so much about families having what they need. And Joanne Goldblum is the founder, and she has really helped me to understand the relationship of teeny little things like diapers and women's independence and families being able to go to work and then my other passion is Youth Volunteer Corps, because I've always believed in volunteerism. Uh, I ran a youth volunteer program in Houston. In fact, I ran two in Houston at the same time, because that's the only way you can get your money, because you need two grants when you work for a small nonprofit. And go. so I really believe in the power of youth service and volunteerism. And so those are incredible opportunities for me to learn and grow and to, to give uh, a little bit. And so those are, for a long time, I wasn't on any boards. I work with a lot of boards. But when those two came into my life, it was like, okay, these, these are my, and, yep. and so diaper need, uh, menstrual equity, and youth service are really, you know, those, those are my passion pieces. So Vicki, where can people find you? You have this new community on Facebook that you shared, but where else? For anybody who who is not on those boards or who's not on Junior League or blessed enough to live in Russia when you come to speak, where can people find you? They can find me at Vicki Clark Consulting. 
And that's where they'll find me on Facebook on Vicki Clark Consulting. I actually, thanks to Chayla and Sharon, I have a website now. Look at you. And I know, I know. I, but I already had, I had a presence. In fact, one of the things Shayla said to me is, how did you get 5,000 people to follow you? And I'm like, I don't know. I just started posting about things that I liked. And, you know, many times I talk about my luggage. I think, you know, I have quite a sense of humor. Yep. Yep. Or when I was traveling, I Love would allow luggage. My, my luggage to talk and say things that I could not say about our travels. And uh, so I've, I'm, you know, have had quite a following. So I'm on Instagram at Vicki Clark Consulting. Same thing on LinkedIn. And uh, yeah, I mean, it's so just. And, and it's I with started, one eye. It's V-I-C-K-I. There you yes, go. I'm so I want people to be able to find you. Yes. Oh, thank you. Yeah, no, I'm a V-I-C-K-I. And again, while this is, this is an amazing time, it's a sad time. I can tell you that because like I said, we weren't supposed to be here 50 some years later. And here we find ourselves. But I think it's just important that we each do what we can and that we learn and that we not be afraid to speak up and out. And that's why I call that space a brave space, not a safe space. And oh, don't get me wrong. I have been afraid at times to speak out because don't forget, would people like me? What would they think about me? You know, don't forget, I went into places starting in the 70s that people who look like me didn't go into. And so the idea of, of, of assimilation, my first job, believe it or not, I was told, you need to do something with that hair. You need to drop that Southern accent. You need to not look too girly. Don't wear light colors. You need to not put pictures of your family up because no one will think of you as a professional. And you need to not act too Black. And I thought to myself, who am I supposed to be? Because what assimilation does is it says that I have to assimilate to the dominant culture in order to be whatever successful means. I am happy. I'm sorry it took me so long, but at this stage in my life, what you get, what you see is what you get. You know, the authentic me. And um, I've had tremendous opportunities in my life to get to know people and and to be in places that again, people who look like me weren't. But I always wanted to make sure that I was acceptable. And that can be a very heavy burden. And as people of color have done that for 100, 400 years and so have women. And so the idea of being me and just saying, here I am, I'm always gonna do the best I can I've always thought of myself as a servant leader. And the concept of servant leadership is very, very important to me. And the idea that really for the first time in you know forever, and my mom was like this. My mom was also the one, she was firebrand. She always said to me, you don't let anybody tell you who you are. You know who you are. And she had that. And the older I get, I realize that I am Freddie's daughter. I am Freddie's daughter because I mean, she took on the school board. She took on everybody. This house that we're in now, when they first started looking at homes uh, to move to, to buy, they were burning crosses in yards here. Mm-hmm. And some of her friends said to her, oh, you don't want to move in that network, that neighborhood. They're burning crosses out. She's like, nobody gonna tell me where to move. Now, by the time they saved for the down payment, the cross burning was over, but that's who she was. Wow. What and 
Oh, she was amazing. And, and I think I fought that for so long. She was such a firebrand. And I, I really am now growing into at this late age. And I've always been proud to be her daughter, but I am, I'm really proud. I'm, I'm growing in to, to, to totally the essence of who Freddie was. I love that. Freddie's daughter. That's what Freddie's I'm, daughter. That's what we should, that should be your next page. It should be called Freddie's daughter. I yeah, think it's I'm, great. T- I'm totally Freddie's daughter. I mean, oh, you know, we had a different, but she was, Freddie was a school secretary in the 1950s and 60s. She was five foot three. The woman ran the world. Okay. I love, it. I love <laughs> it. My dad and I did exactly what she said and we lived to tell about it, you know? <laughs> <laughs> oh, Vicki, thank you so much. This has been uh, more than I could have expected. And I learned more than I, sh- I should have prepared myself to learn way more because you always, always humble me with everything. I could sit at your feet every day. So thank you so much for your time and for sharing with us. Lots of love to you. Well, let me say something, Liv. One thing I've learned about, first of all, it's an incredible honor to be with you and to share. And I'm I'm so proud of you and all the things that you're doing. And what good is a journey if, and no matter how hard it is or how good it is, if somebody can't learn something from it? Amen. And so that is why I am not ashamed to share the highs, the lows, the crazy, because they're all part of who I am. And I know that I'm not the only person who has had these issues with depression, with anxiety, with PTSD, with self-doubt, with feeling like a failure. And I just want to be an encouragement to other people to say there's... You know, there's more, there's something on the other side of through. It will not look like you thought it was going to look like. God and the universe will keep sending amazing people to you. And you just have to be willing to grab onto them. And that's exactly what, what, what I'm doing. And I am really hoping that this work that we're doing now around anti-racism, around bias, I just hope that it really changes things, that it changes people. Because we know now that you can change. We still got laws to change, don't get me wrong. But we know that you can change laws, but if people don't change. And we each, if we all gonna live on this planet together, we must respect each other. We must value each other. And that's the most important thing. And we have to make sure that we get these systems right so that everyone has a chance. I love that. Get the systems right. We've got the time. We got nothing. We got nothing else to do but to fix everything. That's how I look at it. So, but, but again, we got to be in it for the long haul. We got to keep doing it. Well, thank yes. you, ma'am. And thank everybody, you, go dear. check out your Facebook page and all the other things. Big love to you. Oh, you too. And if I ever get back to Houston and my grandson lives there, we're gonna get together. You know, I'm hoping that, you know, we won't be inside too long, but uh, thank you so much. And let's, let's, let's be in touch. And thank you to all of those who are listening and, and who really want to make a change. Amen. Thank you. Appreciate it. Bye, sweet girl. Bye. Bye. There is only one interview left for this first season of Talk to Me with Liv Harrison. And then I'm going to say goodbye for 2020. Although, 
I just might have one more bonus episode up my sleeve. So you'll have to stay tuned to see if I release that. And if I do, I would love for you to listen. Please leave me a review on Apple. People read those things. I need you to subscribe and please share this podcast. One more left for this year, plus maybe a bonus. But I will be back in January 2021, and I cannot wait to share all the big content I have for you then. You are extraordinary.